If you would, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to get there, not immediately, but we'll get there, I promise you. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Keep your Bible open there. And as you're doing that, let me pray for our time in the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, may you speak through me in the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can know and discern God's will in our lives for your glory. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The hallmark of the Christian, the DNA, if you will, of the Christian is that the Christian is someone who knows and does God's will. Their ultimate desire is not to be entertained, not to accumulate wealth, not to chase after the things of the world, but to do God's will. Listen to the words of our Lord. This is Mark 3.35. He says, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7.21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I think the church has forgotten that. You don't just get in because you say, Lord, I believe in you. There's a litmus test for whether your faith is real or genuine. I hear pastors talk about how can we expect somebody from the LBGTQ community to obey God's commands. Have you heard this? We expect them to because that's what Christians do. Christians, true Christians, obey the will of God. That's what Jesus says. And this is what Jesus did throughout his entire ministry. John 4, 34, Jesus said, my food, what I eat, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Next chapter, John 5, 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus in his humanity obeyed the will of God perfectly. And the classic example of this, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when he went to pray right before he was going to the cross. Remember what he prayed? He said, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but yet not my will, but your will be done. He submitted his human will to the divine will. Because remember, Jesus had two natures, human nature, divine nature, two wills. And for the entirety of his life and ministry, he submitted his earthly will to the will of God. And that's what every Christian should do. That should be the defining mark of all of us that we submit our will to God's will. Now to understand what that means, we need to do a little heavy lifting, a little systematic theology. Are you ready for that? Can you put on your thinking caps with me for just a moment? I learned this in my early 20s, what I'm about to share with you from a guy named R.C. Sproul. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but, but Sproul said this, and, and this is very clarifying and helpful for understanding this whole topic of the will of God. Because when the Bible speaks of the will of God, it really speaks of the will of God in three ways. So stay with me here. The first way that the Bible speaks of the will of God is God's will of disposition. God's will of disposition, and that speaks about what God loves, what God cares about. For example, Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now, does God still pronounce judgment and wrath on the wicked? Yes, he does. He's a just God. But God says, my disposition is, is I'm, not, I'm not a punitive uh, God who just loves pouring out my wrath on people, but I have a disposition of love towards people. Now, we're not really going to deal with that will aspect of the will of God this morning, but just tuck that away because that's, that's one aspect of the will of God. The two that we really need to focus on are the next ones, and that is, second, the decretive will of God. 
Now, a decree, think about this, is a sovereign order that a ruler gives that must be carried out. You remember when Daniel was in Babylon and Darius was deceived by his uh, wise men in his court, and Darius made a a decree that anybody who prays or worships to another god besides him will be executed. And then they, the, the, the people in the court use that against Daniel. They bring Daniel to Darius. And you remember what Darius says? He says, my hands are tied. And the reason for that is because there's already been a decree that's been made. Well, the way that God governs sovereignly, and God is sovereign, is God governs by divine decree. I once was in a conversation with this with a, a chaplain uh, at Marine Corps Air Station Iwakuni. We were in the food court. We were both eating Taco Bell. And he, and, and he looked at me, he said, I don't believe you. God governs by divine decree? And I said, look right here in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Look at the second part of verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. When he read that, his jaw dropped. He's like, I'm not, I'm not sure I realized that was, that was in the Bible. And I said, yeah, look up at, at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There it is again. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So Paul understood that God governs and carries out his hand of providence according to his sovereign decree. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul says this, Paul called by or according to the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Solomon says, Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. David says, Psalm 33.10, Yahweh brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. God will carry out his sovereign will no matter what. And nations can scheme and plot. People can strive and strategize. But it is God's will that will carry the day. Always, always. Now, we're not fatalists like Muslims. We believe that God works that will in concurrence with our actions and choices. So God works that sovereign will in concordance with our actions and choices. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers when he revealed himself to them? He said, you meant this for evil, God meant this for good. Isn't that remarkable? It's absolutely amazing to think about what God does with providence. It's it's astounding how God turns what we deem as evil into good for his purposes. So that's God's decretive will. And then third is God's perceptive will. And God's perceptive will, think Ten Commandments. It's the ethical standard that God clearly reveals to us in his word. I read that there's over a thousand commands and prohibitions in the New Testament itself. Over a thousand commands. Those are God's precepts, God's commands, God's revealed will. Uh, When you read through Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, there's an epitaph after every king is mentioned, isn't there? And the epitaph is, is essentially, did this king obey God's commands or disobey God's commands? So Hezekiah, 
It says, he walked in the way of his father, David, and he obeyed the Lord. He feared the Lord. So the evaluation is based on how well the king obeyed the precepts that are revealed in the scriptures to them. So those are the three wills of God that are clarified in the scriptures. So when we talk about, and this is our question this morning, knowing and discerning the will of God, which one are we talking about? We're talking about knowing and applying God's precepts to our current situation. We're talking about God's perceptive will. We're not talking about God's decretive will. We're not talking about God's decretive will. I once heard John Frame say, the only way that you can read providence now is backwards. It's the only way. Now, in the old covenant, in the old covenant, this wasn't always the case. And even in the new covenant, you had prophets like Agabus tell Paul, you know, if you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. But in the old covenant, what you would have is you would have these prophets. And I was, for example, reading recently in 2 Kings 3, and Jehoram comes down, he's the, the king of Israel, he comes down to Jerusalem, and he says, Jeho Jehoshaphat, uh, the Moabites are, are causing issues for me, and I want you to go to war with me against them. And then they say, is there anybody here, is there a prophet of whom we can inquire? And they call on a guy by the name of Elisha. And Elisha comes in and he says, if you go to war against the Moabites, God has declared that he will deliver them into your hands. And of course, God did that. Uh, God brought water down the Jordan River. The Moabites woke up. They thought that the, the two armies of, the, of, of Judah and Israel turned on one another. They came forward. And then essentially, uh, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat wiped the floor of the Moabites, and it was all according to God's decree. And I, and I bring that up because I think what many Christians mean when they say, I want to know and discern God's will, is bring me my Elisha to tell me the secret will of God that's there in the future. When I'm making a decision and I'm trying to ascertain and discern what to do, I want a prophet to come and tell me what God has disclosed for the future. I think that's what many Christians mean. I once had a friend from, from A&M call me just out of the blue, just out of the blue. And he said, Grant, I have a word from God for you. I said, oh, wow. Tell me what this word is. And he said, well, God has told me that you are to go to Oklahoma and you are to start a Bible study and it's going to become a huge college ministry there. And so that's God's word for you. And I said, well, thank you very much. And then I hung up the phone and I knew that it wasn't God's word for me because he said it was in Oklahoma. <laughs> no, no, I, I knew it wasn't God's word for me because prophecy ended essentially when the canon of scripture was closed. Isn't that what Paul says? First Corinthians 13, eight, as for prophets, prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And then John writes at the, at the very end of Revelation, in Revelation 22, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of, of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So essentially, we don't have access to the secret will of God. There, there's no pulling the curtain back, saying, give us another prophet. But here's the thing. I think as Christians, we have something even better, even better. Because what we have that they didn't is a completed word of God. 
We have a completed word of God. And guess what else? If you are a new covenant believer in Christ, you have God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of you. You are anointed to apply and discern God's precepts in every situation from Scripture so that you can think through clearly with God's help how to carry out God's will in your life. So with our time remaining, let me just explain how this works. Let me explain, practically speaking, how this works. So let me give you five points on how to know and discern God's will with the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, how you can move forward in life knowing and discerning His will. First, first, and, and th this might seem so elementary, uh, so basic that you're wondering why I even put it here. But first, you must be born again. You must, as Whitfield said, be born again. You must. In order to carry out God's will, you must be born again. There once was a monk named Pelagius. This is the fifth century. And he came into Rome, he was from England, and he came into Rome and he looked around Rome and he said, there's a problem here. Everybody is living decadently, licentiously. There's a, there's a big moral problem. And so what Pelagius said is we need to clean things up. And so he, he really started something akin to a theological AA meeting. And he just kept going around and telling everybody, you can do the will of God. You just need to do better. You need to be a better person. You, you need to try harder. This kind of sounds familiar to a lot of the, the talking self-help people that you hear today, doesn't it? Well, one day he heard a prayer somebody utter, and it was a prayer that, that he had been taught by a guy named St. Augustine. And this is what the prayer said. It said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. And that infuriated him when he heard that. He's saying, you're saying that God commands us to do something. God commands us to carry out his will. But then we're praying that God would give us the strength, the grace, and the power to carry it out? That, that's, that's crazy. How can you do that? Well, Augustine taught people that prayer because he knew something. He'd read the Bible. He'd read Paul. And he knew that in Adam... We're all under what's called original sin. We all have depraved minds. We all have depraved hearts. So this is a quote from Augustine. He said, quote, we are unable to will unless we are called. And when we will after being called, our will and our running are not sufficient. Listen, unless God offers strength to those who run and brings them to where he calls. I once was counseling a woman, and she was a drunk. She could not put the bottle down for her marriage, for her kids, for the life of her. And she came and met with me, and she says, this is my problem. And before I talked about anything regarding alcohol, I said, do, do you trust in the Lord? And I asked her some basic questions questions, I said, okay, here's your big issue. You're not born again. You're not born again. And she said, I thought I was coming here to tackle my alcohol problem. And you're dealing with me in terms of religion. I said, yeah, we're dealing with your alcohol problem, but we can't deal with it until you're born again. She walked out. But God used that in her life, and later she ultimately became a believer. But here's the point. Here's the point. You can't even ascertain, much less or much more carry out God's will, until you are born again. You have a new heart, a new mind, a new nature. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians. Turn to the left to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to show you this very quickly. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 14. 
Paul contrast the Christian with the non-Christian, the, the believer with the unbeliever. And he calls the Christian the spiritual person, the person who's been born again, the person who's been indwelt by the Spirit. And he calls the unbeliever the natural person, the fleshly person, the earthly person. Notice what he says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Let me say that again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Think Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus said, you must be born a nothing, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, it sounds foolish to him. How can I go back into my mother's womb? He doesn't understand because he's not born again. He says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now look at verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to, to instruct him? And this is a, a really spectacular verse. But we have the mind of Christ. When you become a believer, when you are born again, you are given a new mind. Moreover, through the new birth, not only are you given, given a new mind, you are given a new, new heart. So listen to what Ezekiel says. This is Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So Paul says, regarding the Christian, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. So let me break this down for you very quickly. I put a little chart on your notes, and if I, I see everybody's looking at that right now. Now, that picture, I know, I did this myself. This is, this is, this is my Microsoft Word drawing uh, right in front of you. But uh, the soul, the soul consists of two components, essentially, the mind and the heart. The mind is your thinking capacity. The heart is your effective capacity, your desires, your emotions. Now, before you are a Christian, your mind is depraved, and Ezekiel says you have a heart of stone. Paul says, Ephesians 2.1, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You have a carnal mind that doesn't understand the things of God, and you have a heart that Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17.9 that is deceitfully wicked. Proverbs, you, uh, the, uh, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You have a heart that is foolish, and it is the mind which brings beliefs to the heart which impacts or directs your will. Your will is a function of what you think and what you love. Your will is tied to your mind and your heart. Your will is not just free floating somewhere out there. You do what you think and what you like, always, always, 100% of the time. You always do what you think and love, period. So in order for someone, this is why it's so important, in order for someone to carry out the will of God, they have to have that new mind and that new heart. So that way their will, their actions will then be in tune with what God demands. You see that? Okay. Second, second point in terms of knowing and discerning God's will, you must continually renew your mind. Turn to Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 2. Well, we could spend so much time on these two verses. We're going to have to do, look at verse 2 very quickly. 
do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So first, notice the negative statement. Paul often deals with negatives and positives, the put-offs and the put-ons. Here it is no different in terms of this application in the Christian life. He says, do not be conformed to this world. The word that Paul uses for conformed speaks to an outward conformity. You could say a mold. Uh, J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, of this verse says, don't let the world press you into its mold. So it's the outside, it's the outside pressing in. That's what the word means. It's the outside pressing in. Think about maybe a, a fraternity or a sorority on, on a college campus. You ever, I always notice this. The girls in the sororities, the, the ones in the same sorority, they dress the same, they wore their hair the same. They even talked the same. Why is that? Because there's some outward conformity going on there. The Marine Corps, this is what we try to do with the recruits. When the recruits show up, we cut their hair, put on a uniform, and we try to bring an outward conformity that we hope will impact the inner person. But it's always not always successful because you have um, Oliver North and you have Lee Harvey Oswald. Right? It, so you can't fully be success, successful in terms of the conformity from the outside in. But that's what Paul's saying. He says, don't let that outward mold of this world compress you, conform you. And by the way, that word world there is not the word cosmos, which just means earth. It's ion, which means age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 Paul says that Satan is the God of this age. Galatians 1, Paul says that Christ died to deliver you from this present, I own this age. Here's, here's, if you're a Christian, you're already a citizen of the age to come, not this age. This age belongs to the devil, Paul says. So what Paul's saying is, is don't let those schemes of the devil don't let Hollywood and the New York Times editorial board press you into their thinking. That's what he's saying. But on the contrary, be transformed. This is the positive. By the renewal of your mind. The word for transformed is metamorpho. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Here's the difference. It's a transformation that takes place on the inside that permeates to the outside. The same word, metamorpho, is the word that Matthew uses to describe Christ in the transfiguration. Where Christ goes up on the mountain and he was... Metamorpho, he was transfigured before him, before them. Matthew says his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. In the transfiguration, Jesus was showing the disciples who he really was. It was the reality that was on the inside that was shining forth on the outside. And Paul is calling for this transformation of our minds, of our hearts, a transformation that takes place on the inside. Look what he says. It comes through the renewal of the mind. Now, we already saw from 1 Corinthians 2 that when you become a Christian, when you're born again, you have the mind of Christ. You're already given the mind of Christ. But Paul says there's a sense where even though we already have the mind of Christ, it needs to always be renewed, to be recalibrated. It's that Psalm 1 life where you're meditating on God's law day and night. It's Psalm 119.1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. 
And the result of this, Paul says, is that you approve, or you could say affirm, or confirm, or prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now here, which will is he talking about? Will of disposition, will of decree, or will of precept? He's talking about God's will of precept. Because God's will of precept is good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. Always. Here's what he's saying. He says, as you renew your mind, you're transformed. And then what happens is, as you live your life, you taste and see that the Lord is good. You see his will and you say, wow, walking in purity, this is good. This is acceptable. This is perfect. God, God's moral law is wonderful. Isn't that Psalm 119? It's like God's commands, they're just amazing. I affirm that they are good and acceptable and perfect. So what you see here in, in Romans 12 too, is that the transformation begins with the whole person, with the whole person. One of the things that I've learned from Martin Lloyd-Jones, does anybody know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is? Okay, a few, a few of you. One of the things that I learned from Martin Lloyd-Jones, so helpful for me, so helpful. He was a medical physician. He was a pathologist, essentially. And he carried this over into, the, into his Christian experience. But he said, you always start with the general and then move to the specific. And that's how the Bible works. That's how, that's how Christianity works, is you start with the whole person, the renewal and transformation of the whole person, not with a specific problem. Oftentimes when people come to me, they say, this is, I'm trying to discern God's will for this situation. I'm struggling with this sin. This is the issue with my children. This is the, the issue that we're dealing with. That's not where you start. It's not where you start. It's not where Paul starts. You've got to go to the whole man, the whole woman, the whole person. The renewal of the mind. You start with the general, the transformation of the heart. So there, you can begin to understand some of the specifics. So that's number two. Number two is you must continually renew your mind. First, you must be born again. Third, you must master God's revealed will. As you are studying the scriptures, you must understand what God has clearly said regarding his precepts. You must know them and you must strive to master them. I'm going to go through these quickly. First, God's will is that you live for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Question, what does God care about most? His glory. God cares most about his glory because he's God. If he was like you and me, he could care about other people more. But he's God, and if you're the infinite God, and you're deserving of all the worship, and all of the praise, and all of the honor, then God by necessity must lift up his own glory to be the highest end of not only himself, but all of us. And that point right there is central to understanding and navigating the, the courses of life, is knowing that God is about his glory. That's what it means to be God-centered that we be God-centered Christians who are concerned to carry out the glory of God. Second, God's will is that you be sanctified. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will is that you be pure. This is not hard. Once I was on a Marine Expeditionary Unit and another officer came to me and said, I need to talk to you tonight in the mess hall. So I sat down across from him and he said, when we get back into port, uh, my girlfriend wants me to compromise with her morally. He said, 
what do you think about that? I said, well, it doesn't really matter what I think about that, but 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this. God says you should be sanctified. You don't have to think about it. It's right here. doesn't matter what you think or I think. God's already spoken. Third, God's will is that you give thanks in all circumstances. You know, last night, I, I just wondered, I just wondered, I, I, I asked myself, I wonder if we'll sing It Is Well with my soul this morning. I, 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 that would be just marvelous if we did. Whatever my lot, God has taught me to say, it is well with my soul. When I was in high school, kids used to put Philippians 4.13 on their letter jackets. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can win that basketball tournament. I can, you know, get the, get the physics test done. I can, I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's not talking about winning championships in Philippians 4. You know what he's talking about? Contentment. Contentment. He says, I can, I can be content. I can give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians 5, 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for that is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Fourth, God's will is that you do good works, that you do good deeds. First Peter 2, 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Fifth, God's will is that at times you will suffer. First Peter 3.17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. First Peter 4.19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Six, God's will is that you endure to the end. Hebrews 10:26. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God's will is that you keep on keeping on, that you keep on the Christian life, that you keep believing, you keep running the race, as Paul did, all the way to the end. And then next and finally, God's will is that you pray for his will to be done. Remember in the disciples' prayer? Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as, as it is in heaven. In all of our prayers, we are submitting our will to his will, just as Christ did in the garden. And that's true of people, and that's true of churches, something that I think we, we all should remember, that we are seeking the Lord's will in every single situation. Now, if you do this, if you study God's word to know God's revealed will, you will become wise. You will become wise because you will begin to bleed Bible. That's what they said of Bunyan. He bleeds Bibline. One of the questions that I used to get all the time in college, you know, they do these kind of who you are surveys and uh, they would publish them so, you know, people could get to know you in student government and things like that. And one of the questions that was prevalent when, when I was a student was, if you could have dinner with anybody, who would you have dinner with? Have you ever gotten that question? And my desire and my answer to that question was always, give me somebody who knows the Bible. I don't want a celebrity. I don't need a, an actor. I don't need a famous general. Give me Isaiah. Give me Luther. Give me Chriswell or Spurgeon or Edwards, somebody who knows God's will. Because when you, when you talk to somebody who, who has studied God's will, it's like light just emanates out from them. And isn't that what the psalmist says? Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So you master God's revealed will, and it's like a light is shining in front of you. And to help you understand that light and to help you discern which way to go and to help you navigate with wisdom, you have the Holy Spirit. And this is the fourth point. This is so important. 
You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Turn to Ephesians. Turn to the right to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. Now the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, comes, Paul says, and, and baptizes all Christians into one body. We're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, we are a temple of the living God. So if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides within you. But Paul gives this imperative in verse 17. He says, therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, you understand God's precepts. Understand it, master. We've already talked about that, right? Notice how it's contrasted with being foolish. Then verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So verse 17 talks about essentially what you know. Verse 18 speaks about what controls you. And Paul says, look, a drunk is controlled by his liquor. A drunk is controlled by his wine. But you be controlled, you be filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're already indwelled by the Spirit, how can you be filled with the Spirit? Well, this word speaks to essentially what is controlling you. Think about a cell with wind blowing into it. So you have the cell, but the question is, is the cell oriented properly? And that's, that's somewhat what Paul means here. He says, you orient your life according to the word of God, and then the Holy Spirit will help guide and direct your steps. Now here I wanna speak to the experiential a little bit, to the subjective, okay? Because the Holy Spirit does convict you of sin. The Holy Spirit encourages you to do things. The Holy Spirit prompts you. Have you ever been sitting there on the plane and you're sitting there next to the guy or the gal and you just said, wow, I must, I'm under conviction, I must present the gospel to this person. It's the Holy Spirit urging you to do something. The question is, how do you know if it's the Holy Spirit and not the pizza that you ate in the terminal? How do you know? And the way that you know is that the Holy Spirit always works in accordance with the Word of God. Always. Always. He never contradicts the Word. He wrote it. Jesus said, sanctify them to, about the Holy Spirit in the truth. Thy Word is truth. The Holy Spirit uses the truth in you like an airplane uses jet fuel. The problem is, is that too many Christians don't have enough fuel in the tank. There's not enough truth. They haven't, they haven't taken in enough truth. So Paul says they're like, in Ephesians 4, he says they're like being tossed to and fro on, on the waves of this world by every wind of doctrine. Because the Holy Spirit uses the truth that you've taken in, the revealed will of God, those precepts. In order to help guide you, Paul says in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the Holy Spirit grabs hold of that truth and you become a walking will of God. You know God's will and he convicts you when you don't do it and he encourages you when you do do it. He prompts you to, to carry out his commands, his imperatives. So that's how the Holy Spirit works in the Christian life, is he uses the truth. He helps you recall truth. And that's why it's so important that you're always meditating on the truth. That's why point three was so important, that you master God's revealed will, because that's what the Holy Spirit uses. Now, all of that, points one through four, are about the general, aren't they? We're not talking about any specific decision. We're not talking about fighting any specific sin. It's all general. But if you don't do the general, you're not going to be ready to tackle the specific issue. But when it comes to a specific decision, when it comes to deciding something, fighting a sin, looking to discern God's preceptive will in a specific situation, let me give you these rules for decision-making, okay? 
So you've done one through four. You're born again. You're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're learning. You're understanding God's revealed will. You're walking by the Spirit. Now you are making a specific decision. First, first, pray. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Seek the Lord. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor in vain who build it. James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you ask God with faith, he will give you wisdom. Second, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. We pray, and then we're, we're too prone to act immediately, but it's important to wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, 7 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Psalm 62, 1 says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So don't rush God's timing. Wait for the Lord. Third, look for open and closed doors. Look for open and closed doors. In Acts 16, God, the Holy Spirit, closed a door for Paul and Silas in Asia, and then they had a vision to go over to Macedonia. God closed one door, and God opened another door. Often, listen to this, listen to this. The path that you take in life is the intersection of your godly desire and an open door. The path that you often take in life is the intersection of your godly desire and an open door. And God is the one who opens doors. I think that's obvious. So, so much of your life is just providence. So much of your life is God. I once heard MacArthur say out at a shepherd's conference, he said, 10% of my life is what I planned. 90% is what God did. And that's life. Who you marry, where you end up, where you go. So much is just God. God opens a door. And that door at the time coincides with a godly desire. Proverbs 16, 19, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Fourth, fourth, seek godly wisdom. Seek godly wisdom because there are people out there, believe it or not, who know God's word better than you do. They exist. There's some out there. And what we're instructed to do in scripture, this is Proverbs 15, 22. He says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And it's amazing to me how somebody who knows God's precepts, when you approach them with a problem that you've been dealing with, how God can use that person to speak truth into your life where everything just becomes clear, crystal clear. I remember when I was in college, my sophomore year, I was really praying and seeking the Lord about whether I should go into the Marine Corps or whether I should go straight to seminary. And my father knew I was thinking through this, praying through this, and of course we're in the middle of a war, so all that was, was on my conscience and, and about the, the need to, to serve, but also my desire to serve the Lord. And so my dad took me out to the Master's Seminary in Sun Valley, California. And we met with a guy named Ray Merringer, who was the director of their admissions office. And my dad said, Grant, tell him your quandary. Tell him, you know, what you're seeking the Lord for. And I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm praying through whether or not I should go in the Marine Corps or whether I should come straight to seminary and begin training to be a, an expositor of God's word, a pastor. And he asked me a few questions. And then he said, let me tell you what you need to do. He said, you need to go in the Marine Corps first because God's going to teach you about so much about life, about evangelism, uh, about what your uh, people go through on a, on a daily basis. He's going to teach you those things in the Marine Corps so that when you come out and you finally come to seminary, you are going to be loaded for bear to be a pastor. And by the way, most churches aren't looking to hire 24-year-old pastors. So it gives you some time. 
And, you know, it was, it was funny. Just like that, I'm walking out of his office. I, I, I was just thinking, this guy just wrote the, the next 10 years of my life, the script, you know. He just, he just gave it to me. It was just so clear. Okay, that's what, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go serve, and then I'll, I'll go to seminary. And that's what I did. And that's what godly counsel can do. It just, it just clarifies everything. Six. Act according to godly desires. Act according to godly desires. When you've done all these things, you simply do what you want to do. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, the key to this verse, the, the dangerous thing about this verse is people go to this verse and say, Oh, I, I, you know, I do the desires of my heart. But the first part is delight yourself in the Lord. You got to do all the things that we've already talked about before you say, I'm going to, 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 to go for the desires of my heart. But if you've done those things, that's what you do in a situation. You say, if you're in line with God's will, you do what you want to do. Augustine said, love God and do what you will. So the idea is that your love for God will help guide you as you make decisions. And then seventh and finally, seventh and finally, is you trust in the providence of God. Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Don't live your life second guessing everything. You can't live like that. Who's ultimately in control of everything by decree? God is. You have to trust him, even with your past sins, your past mistakes, the decisions you've made, you must trust God and his providence. That all things, if you're a Christian, and they are, are working together for your good. So I hope that's helpful for you as we're thinking and we're praying and we're looking to God to understand his will, what he would have for us ultimately for his glory and his honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, the one who is working all things for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Lord, we do pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom and we ask in faith that you would give us wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that in all things regarding Christ Baptist and capital and our lives, that you would have the honor and the glory and that you would be worshiped and adored. We ask all of this in Christ's beloved name. Amen.